You're listening to episode 34 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. After making his name in giallo films throughout the 1970s, Italian horror legend Dario Argento took a short break at the end of the decade, but returned with what many call his crowning achievement in the genre, Tenebrae. Peter Neal, a soft-spoken author of controversial horror novels, travels to Rome to promote his latest book. Following his arrival, a young woman is found dead, killed in a manner strikingly similar to a murder found in Neal's book. With the air of suspicion hovering over him, and with the bodies piling up, the quest to find the killer intensifies as Neil goes from hapless bystander to intended victim. Fourth episode of Video Nasty here, Wayne. Yeah. Our concluding chapter. And I've got to say, Wayne, <laughs> I thank our all our followers, Wayne, because mm. Cannibal Holocaust was a great success. It was, yes. People were engaged, they were excited, as were we. And it feeds into the material, doesn't it? To be honest, I was expecting that one to get the most interaction. So thank you, everybody who commented, everyone who sent some really nice compliments from our listeners. Thank you so much. Mr. Echo. Mr. Echo, yes, thank You've you, You've always Echo. got to rep him. Yeah, you're a legend, Echo. Uh, yeah, that one got the most engagement. And uh, But we kind of knew that. We kind of knew that was the one that was going to spark the most interesting reactions. Well, I think in that episode, I actually... To, you know, quote myself, you know, because I'm that way, clearly. Well, yes, um... We said that it's a name brand. It is, Cannibal yeah. Holocaust name brand. And we knew that would increase engagement. We knew that would be the one most discussed because it's more infamous, isn't it? Yeah, well, if, you, if you'd if you said to me a few months ago, the witch who came from the sea, I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. See, but that's what's interesting, Wayne. You have to stick the popular one in. And then people think, okay, this is interesting. But maybe I did miss Don't Go in the House. Maybe I did, didn't mm. listen to The Witch Who Came From the Sea. But now I enjoyed the Cannibal Holocaust episode. Now I'm going to go back and listen to them. And hopefully listen to this one. Someone was listening to uh, our uh, Witch Who Came From the Sea recently, so thank you for that. But yeah, this brings us to the end of Video Nasty Month. It's a shame. Really enjoyed this month. Our concluding chapter, Wayne. <laughs> it's gone by really fast. Very good. The the research I found has been especially interesting this month. Just just the ridiculousness of partly of why these films were banned or censored. Or how prudent the British were in the 80s. Exactly. It's so bloody ridiculous. There's people, those poor dogs, those poor people's dogs being set off by these films. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King predicted this in Cujo. Yes. Oh God, yeah. He, he knew he knew the trouble that video nasties would cause <laughs> while he was completely off his ass writing Cujo, on cocaine. Yes, he was. Yes, cocaine, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a psychedelic band. <laughs> cocaine, Steve, and the Three Musketeers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, but yes, there you but, go. But, like you but, say, but, but we've Wayne. Wayne. It is our first, our very first Dario Argento film. Mm -hmm. We have reached Jolly Gold. Yes. Do you feel as a podcast? Argento is almost one of those names that you want to get to and you feel you kind of have to. Because what a guy. What great, a filmography. Great man. Great director. Absolutely, yeah. Rightfully called Wayne the Hitchcock of Italy. I would not I would not disagree with that whatsoever. So, so let, let, let's examine that for a moment, right? The Hitchcock of Italy. Why is it you think he got this tag in the 70s? Was it purely the horror aspect, the thriller aspect? 
No, I'm going to count it that way. Mm-hmm. He's a visual, a visual storyteller. Exactly. It's the style of the films. It's the visuals. It's how using camera work, using settings, which is especially prevalent in this film, that way. Not just the fact he did horror, because Hitchcock, obviously he specialised in horror, but he did other genres as well. But for me, it's the visual aspect. Like, like when we did Body Double, we talked about De Palma, his mastery of the visual medium. I think that's why Argento attracted that label. And I think it's very well deserved. Wayne... Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned Body Double? Yeah. I would say, here's the thing, Wayne. I would actually say, this is Argento's Body Double. It is. I've written the exact same thing You've down. You've the same thing? The very same you t- thing. You tart, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, was just, I was just stealing your notes. Is that what you, were you peeking at my notes? I was peeking at your notes. You yeah. devil. Yes. You devil. And why is it? Why is it um, Argento's Body Double? For me, this is Argento's reaction to his critics mm-hmm. that called him in what Argento said. They would call him a murderer. But Did they anyway, think he was Deodato or something? Yes. <laughs> uh, misogynist. Yeah. All, all, the, all these labels that Argento was tagged with. Mm-hmm. De Palma was also. Yeah. And Body Double, as we explained in our Body Double episode, which is a very good episode people should check out. Mm-hmm. Was De Palma's comment on that? Yeah. And this is Argento's. It's essentially someone said to the director, you are this, this, and this, and them turning around and saying, oh yeah, check this out. I'll show you. You've not seen anything yet. You think you you think that trickler <laughs> blood was a lot? Check out this bucket, bitch. Yeah, it's basically, it's almost, they used it as motivation. It was like fuel on the fire. Exactly. Like, right, I'm going to go out and make this goddamn film. You're going to hate this. No, people loved the hell out of it. Not the the censors, of course. They were very unhappy with this film. Do you know why this was censored, Wayne? Because 1980s Britain. I think so. <laughs> because here, here Wayne, mm-hmm. I don't actually know why this was... Why was this censored? Well, I actually, interestingly, have a list here. It's the nasties right. we have. Okay, we have exposed breasts, belly impalement, throat slashing, face slashing, back slashing, axe to the, ga- axe to the head, axe to the back, shanking, arm amputation, brackets... With bonus spurting, close brackets. I'm going to ask you again. So why was it? <laughs> so why was this is it? What on we the like list? to see. This is what we like to see in yes. our horror films. Well, it's the typical things. It, it's you know, it's the censor movie which we keep coming yeah. back to. That kind of thing. Oh, better take this out. This is unfair. This is objectionable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like we say, this is Argento making a very Argento movie. Just like Body Double was a very De Palma movie. It's very much leaning into what made them so famous. What's you know they're their whole style. They're highlighting their own tropes. Exactly. They're playing with their tropes. Yeah. They're making their tropes what that film is and so do you think it's also you'll probably agree here of kind of symbolic middle finger to the critics to the people who denigrated their movies and you know said they were no good they're misogynist they're violent etc it's a big fuck you isn't it basically it? is yeah because dario argento himself he's a man he's a he's of the civil rights he's of women's rights he himself he's not a misogynist and this plays in which we'll get into later the peter neil character yes and comments that certain critics within this film mm-hmm. make towards the protagonist yeah. peter neil there are direct lines of dialogue in this movie which if you were just glossing over it would just think it was part of the film but when you research it when you know the background of the film you think that is aimed right at those people so let's get into some inspiration wade this came this film to dario argento while he was working on an unproduced project in los angeles whilst he was in los angeles he kept getting these phone calls in his hotel there was this mysterious guy and it was a man who kept phoning 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 they built up this dialogue this man was a fan of argento but soon after a while these phone calls, Wayne, they turned sinister. Mm-hmm. So, Because what happened is, he said to Argento, 
you've ruined my life, now I'm going to ruin yours. He blamed him for psychological damage Psycho- brought on by his films. Which caused Argento to flee to Italy, mm-hmm. back to Italy. Where he, I think, had either holed up in his hotel, uh, hotel room or holed up in his house, and that's what gave him the inspiration to pen the script. Which, in a way, is brilliant, kind of taking this, what could have been a very dark time in his life, and essentially used it as inspiration. Exactly, Wayne. We are working multiple levels here, the inspiration. We have got this maddened caller, don't we? We have these critics. We have, Wayne. Here's the thing. This is 1982. Mm-hmm. This is his first Jolly, official Jalo, in at least five years. Since since kind of mid to late 70s. Because in the interim, he has made Suspiria. He has made Inferno which he calls are two films of his Three Mothers trilogy. Mm -hmm. The third was supposed to come out after Inferno, but that was put on hold. He ended up making this film. So the third concluding chapter to the Three Mothers trilogy wouldn't happen to, I think, 2006, and it was called The Mothers of Tears. Hmm. Mother of Tears. Never seen it, Wayne. Belated, yeah. Not good (laughs) reviews. Very, very maligned film. Is it one of those films where you have a master like Argento who years later is making a film, people are saying it fails because he's just trying to recapture the magic, he's trying to relive the glory days? They become a pastiche of themselves. Basically a parody I, I, of themselves, I think yeah. that's what it's about. So what, what, what's them? We said the Three Mothers trilogy. If anybody's not familiar with Argento, these, each f- film deals with one of the titular mothers, a triumvirate of ancient witches whose powerful magic allows them to, mani- to manipulate world events on a global scale, killing anyone who discovers their whereabouts and who are determined to rule the world. Do you know where that's from, Wayne? Where's that that's from? straight from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those sound like uh, those sound like pretty uh, empowered women there you're talking about in this misogynist uh, filmography. Suspiria played a little different with me. <laughs> it wasn't, I, I don't, it was I, a different, I don't yeah. know if that was exactly how it, I took a Suspiria there. Because well, they were intended as the victims that were being yes. stalked, etc. Did et you? Well, yeah. this, this global, you know, conspiracy? <laughs> I suppose so. I don't but, know if I picked up on that on the Suspiria. But, but like I'm saying, he's taking his criticisms and he's just throwing them back at his audience through this movie. Also, interesting we're talking about this here in 2022. Because this film, 1982, the 40-year anniversary of Tenebrae. And I promise, even though I chose this film, it was not for that reason, because I didn't even realise until I was researching for it. Completely accidental. Exactly. Who knew in Film Week Trust couldn't do math? (laughs) None of us knew. Well, I certainly couldn't in school. A happy accident, Wayne. But we can now. But yes, we're rounding up Video Nasty Month with the 40th year anniversary of Tenebrae. Tenebrae, Wayne. Return to form by a gentle, like you say, a a return to Jello films, like you say, inspired by this awkward psychological period in his life and yeah it, again it's kind of him going back to his roots because he'd done the supernatural with Suspiria yes. and Inferno and now he's coming back to this more like you say when we talked about Jello films like Barbarian based on those old like those old kind of mystery novels almost like a whodunit yeah. thriller it's a yeah a whodunit a mystery thriller kind of like a Italian Hercule Poirot we'll say but why did he return to Jolly? well why did he give up Jalo in the first place he gave Jalo up in the first place because he was sick of year after year of these directors what he thought were ripping him off mm. not only were they ripping off his work they were also titling their films with some animal based title Famously, Argento would make The Bird with a Crystal Plumage. Yeah. Of course, what is the animal in that uh, film, Wayne? A bird. Yeah, a bird, exactly. <laughs> and then you'd get a Don't Torture a Duckling, etc. You'd get a plethora of films year after year with an animal in the title. Mm-hmm. And that kind of put Argento off. And he retreated into fantasy, as we said, Suspiria Inferno. But after a while, he was like, look, I am the king of Jalo. <laughs> 
fuck these guys, I'm coming back, and I'm going to make the Jalo to end all Jalos. So this was the king in exile coming back to reclaim his throne. He was sick of imitators. He wanted to come back and say, this is how you do it. No more animals in movie titles. Exactly. <laughs> but here, here's the... here's the, uh, There's a little point of contention here. Yeah. Dario Argento himself thinks he is the originator of the Jalo genre. Mm-hmm. I think Mario Bava would have a word with that. The girl who knew too much. Yeah, well, when was Crystal, Crystal Plumage? Was 1970? 1970, Mario Bava's film, early 60s. The thing is, that's... When do you like a genre like this? Was there a definitive first one, or did elements start emerging and then it was eventually coalesced into a single film? Are you making the argument, Wayne, that maybe, for example, Black Christmas wasn't a slasher film, it but it led on to slasher films? Yes. So you could say that Bava's film was the influence for Jalo without being a Jalo itself. Exactly. Like if you have a film which has all of the characteristic elements of a genre, but wasn't called it at the time. Is that the first film in that genre or isn't it? So you're saying you need the movement first before the film. Well, it's like, say one movie is way ahead of its time, has some yes. of these elements, but later on, one film popularises it. Right. So even something like found footage, like some people forget earlier found footage, but everyone talks about things like Blair Witch Project, for example, because it popularised it. It did. And as we mentioned there, Carnival Holocaust, that's a, you know, it's a hybrid film, narrative, yeah. found footage... There was the Blair Witch Project, but before the Blair Witch, there was the last broadcast, I think it was called. Yes. So Blair Witch wasn't the first. More infamously. But anyway, whether he, whether or not he is the originator of Jalo, like you say, this was his return to the genre. Can I just say, what a return. Love I it, Wayne. Absolutely love it. See, this was a first time watch for you. This you was said. for me, yes. And I, I, this was second or third, and I was a bit anxious, a bit apprehensive. I knew you were a big fan of Suspiria, yeah, which no. you are. Yes, I am. And you're not you're not overly familiar with his catalogue of films, are you? No, not as much not as not as much as you, of course. But you love Suspiria, yes. and that's a good starting point because mm-hmm. a lot of people probably think that's the apex of Argento's work. Yes, even even though it's not even jolly. Anais Swain, it has his tropes. Yes, has his hallmarks. Because mm-hmm. as we said, Argento above all is a visualist. Yes, very stark contrast between this and Suspiria visually. Mm-hmm. Very important you say that because when we talk about visuals. We're not talking about anything bright or striking. In fact, Argento purposely, he wanted the environments to be, he said, cold and austere. Because when you look at this movie, it's not a pleasant movie. This is shot in Rome, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But we don't see anything like, for example, there's no Colosseum, no Spanish Steps, no Trevi Fountain. It's unglamorous. I can tell you why, Wayne. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you know why? Because he wanted to be like, he wanted to show the dark underbelly. No, I'll tell you, Wayne. Uh Listen up, people. <laughs> you said this is shot in Rome. Yes. But, Wayne, here's the important thing. Hold on to your seats, little man. <laughs> right? It's not supposed to be Rome. Oh, yeah. This is a non-specific town. All right. Do you know why? This is set in the future. It was. I had no idea about this. <laughs> I remember that. It was a future with a reduced population. Because when you think, there's scenes in this movie, they're sat in like town squares. There's no one there. There's like five or six people Very diminished. About. I'll get onto this, Wayne. Mm-hmm. I've got it in my notes. I've wrote down from the man himself. He said this was set in a futuristic and non-existent town. Mm. While they were making this, Wayne, he told his collaborators that this film is set 15 years in the future, where there is a very diminished population. Argento, it's never stated in this film, but Argento, the man himself, says the cause of this is an atomic bomb. Oh, right. It's not stated in the film, and the rest of the population has no memory of this event. Right. That's how he started off this film. I'm not saying the audience is supposed to know this, but this is kind of the world he's building in his own head to bring the film visually to the audience. So what you're saying is it's an atomic bomb that caused amnesia in the survivors. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, there's a sentence I never thought I'd say. But yeah, you're right. Wayne, yes. you never question the masters. Okay. Oh, yes. sorry, sorry, Argento. You yeah, go exactly. ahead with that. But you, like you say, you, you tell him. Okay, so it's fil- so we're filmed in Rome, but he wanted it to be anonymous, it's, a non-specific. It's location. a non-specific town because yeah, we have realistic lighting, very natural. Everything kind of cold, grey, ugly. Makes sense if we're talking sometime after this nuclear apocalypse. Everything looks like we say unglamorous. And I say he insists on no famous landmarks to maintain that anonymity. But you know how we're saying you said it's non-descriptive it's very futuristic mm-hmm. the architecture is modernist this is the antithesis of rome when you think of rome as you said you think the Colosseums. you think this you know this ancient beauty all these houses and some it kind of ties in with the bird of the crystal bird with the crystal plumage it's very modern it's very sleek mm. it's almost got you know in the uk in the 70s that brutalist architecture yeah. style like almost almost um like like kind of utilitarian exactly yeah exactly nothing what, what a clockwork orange would yeah. show because everything just seems so simplistic everything is square like this movie makes a lot of use of night shots for example walking along nondescript street streets going through nondescript uh, town squares where everything is yeah like say kind of anonymous empty empty barely anybody there gives it that extra that kind of there ex- is an eeriness to there it. is an eeriness that's the one yeah it's in many ways it's a haunted film mm. you're haunted from the start and you're not necessarily knowing that but yeah. you're building this picture visually and you're thinking mm, something is off this is an off kilter world because yeah, we've had films like um films where you would show you would show terror and you would show fear by mm. having someone in among a huge crowd of people. But this is doing the opposite. Exactly. This is feel like almost like you're kind of adrift. Like this, like you're floating in the ocean. There's barely anything around you're you. You're cast out on your own. Exactly. You're just kind of an anonymous being there. So tenebrae, tenebrae. However we want to pronounce it. It's tenebrae. <laughs> yes. I say tenebrae. Yeah. Right. The interpretation, the translation is darkness. 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 Yeah. Shadows. Mm-hmm. Which kind? Of, it's a juxtaposed here, Wayne. That's mm. the title of the film. Not much darkness in this film, visually. It's very overlit, would you say? A lot of it is. Very overlit. It's very bright. Yeah. It's not the kaleidoscopic, psychedelic look of Suspiria, for Even example. Even the night scenes, like, did you think the streetlights were quite harsh? Oh, yeah. It's like kind of very, very much beaming down on yeah. it. I yeah. think that's intentional. That's what I'm saying. It's causing, like like how we're saying about the absence in the world, mm-hmm. the lights are off kilter themselves. Mm-hmm, yeah. And should we talk just briefly how this fits into the whole video nasty thing? You just, tell me. Just watching this, you would expect it to be on the video nasty list. I mean, the films we've looked at before, Cannibal Holocaust, obviously. The main one, Wayne? Yes. yes it's of Italian. Course. Of course, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Don't go in the house, the witch yes. came from the sea, which we've covered before. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there are elements, which we look by on now and think kind of silly but back then right. obviously freaked out but yeah. I was reading an article worldsgreatestcritic.com mm. okay not full of himself are they actually anything. great they're okay they're okay world's okayest critic and it said uh, quote Tenebrae 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 is yet another huge example of why censorship is such a bad idea particularly censorship run rampant as was the case with the video nasty era we're talked about censorship. Yeah. Not the biggest fans. Yep. Unless we're talking real animal deaths, of yeah. course, in which case... That's it. Inexcusable, get yes. Rid of, get rid of that shit. But you think, with the hysteria, you think they decide to ban a few things in a few films. Do you think that just grew out of control and that's why films like this got kind of sucked into that? Yeah, Wayne. It's like we explained in another episode about, you know, the satanic panic. Yeah. People get caught in this drift, don't they? And they kind of they end up going with the flow. Yeah. So it causes this mass hysteria. It's like a domino effect. And when you don't deal with the real issues, you end up placating and putting that onto something else. And it just 
tumbleweeds into this stupidity. Yeah, we banned this. This is a bit dodgy. I guess we should ban this as and well. And this is like that. So just lump yeah. that in. We don't have to deal with that. You don't have to have any intellect about it. Just shove them. No. If it, if the film looks similar, if it's made by similar filmmakers, that's it. Mm. Just push them all into one category. Don't want people thinking we'll just ban it for them. And complaints here about it's higher than usual body count. Well, what's usual? I don't know. What is usual? Not even really a high body count. A highly sexualized presentation of its violent content. Yeah, but again, this was kind of what yeah. Argento was playing this, around this with. This was his jam, wasn't it? This was <laughs> it was his jam, yeah. And uh, Thomas Rostock, uh, filmmaker, no idea. he said, Of all the titles placed on the video nasty list, Tenebrae, Denebrae, is perhaps the most misunderstood and undeserving of the grimy status it gained through its association with the whole debacle. Because you wouldn't lump this in with the same, in the same thing Holocaust. as like Driller Killer or like Cannibal Holocaust. Or Why do we love like Abel Ferrara? Leave Abel Ferrara alone. <laughs> just because he wants to kill with a drill. I'm pretty sure alone. That, I'm pretty sure that was just uh, put on the list because of its name. But no, this is very different. And like we've explained in all of our episodes during the video nasty controversy, mm-hmm. and I think what kind of surprised us in a little way is how different and varied these films are. We don't have to bang on about it, but they're not one collective. Every film we have chosen, which came from the sea, Don't Go in the House, Cannibal Holocaust, Tenebrae, extremely different from one another. Mm. When we've lumped them in with the video nasty list, you know, this UK stupidity, (laughs) it's not saying these films are alike. And that's what people need to understand. They are nothing alike each other. There's death, there's murder, of course. We're dealing in horror here. But apart from that, there's not much linking them. The only real unifying thing seems to be all of them outraged people. All yeah. of them offended people and they got complained and they got them right. you know, removed from circulation. Right. So it's, that's it. It's just collective outrage. Funnily enough, when I was looking about the original release, I love this, the original 1983 VH, uh, VHS release had some footage cut. You know how much footage was cut? Um, four seconds. Four seconds? Yep. What was the four? Do you know about the four seconds? <laughs> no were? idea what it was. You and no it was idea. banned entirely in the UK until 1999. You know how much was cut out when it was released then? Oh, Another second. Oh, got to get rid of those five do you seconds. Do you think that second was worth it? <laughs> that second, obviously, that was very important. Jesus and also, Christ. fun fact, never been released in Germany. The German uh, film... Oh, that's right, yes. The German film board of classification just said, no, never going to release it. Is the Germans quite harsh in their they censorship? Are. Not just uh, movies, video games as well. Like really? a lot of overly violent video games, yeah. Like Soldier of uh, Fortune, things like that. Is this like, like Fallout from the Nazi period? It could have been, a Are they too so. afraid that, you yeah, know... It's, like, oh, it's, it's like almost like an overreaction. But yeah, yeah. like you say... We've done four films. This is our fourth film. All very different. The only thing that seems to unify them is that people didn't like them at the time. People were very shocked and appalled by them, we'll say. We can say it, Wade. We can say it. We don't have to be afraid. We are of this nationality. British stupidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Because we get to look at our own. Yeah. But it's in a way, it's interesting because we get to see how our culture has changed yeah. over time. Like you say, the very reactionary types, your Mary Whitehouses at the yeah. time. Hey, who, hey. Yeah. So, so Echo, <laughs> you can't say British stupidity. You, <laughs> we we can only say the British stupidity. We're free exactly, to say that because we are the British. We're well, jesting, yeah. Echo, yes. of course. But the film itself. Tenebrae. Let's get into it, right? Let's get into the film. We open Tenebrae. It's the book of the film. Yeah. The book, the film with the book within the film, what do we call it? Sort yes. of, yes. Tenebrae, yeah. the book within the film, I suppose. Because our protagonist in this film is a man called Peter Neal. Mm-hmm. And there is his book in a bonfire, yeah. in a fire. And there is a sentence said over this, he had broken the most deep-rooted taboo mm-hmm. and found not guilty or anxiety or fear, but freedom. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is uh, the... The title of this movie comes from the title of the book. This yes. new book by Peter Neal. The book within the film. Spelled differently on the book cover. The A, the, the a is missing, isn't yes. it? <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I noticed that. Also, see, when this movie started, I thought I'd put the wrong film. I thought it was The Burning. I thought it was Don't Go in the House Again, because that opened with a burning fire. Oh, so, well, is that the unifier? <laughs> is it the fire? Exactly, Maybe yes. that's the unifier way. So, so those, two, that movie, those two movies do have the fire in common. Right, so here's the thing, right? Let, let's get into it. We don't have to go bit by bit through this film, do we? No. Very interesting film, very thematic film, very psychological I film. Feel, I feel like we could talk for a long time about right. this if we're given the free reign. But let's let's get into it. The protagonist of this film is Peter Neal. Yes. He's an American novelist. Mm-hmm. He's making his way to Rome. So his book is the one that was burning in this fireplace at the start of the film. And I'll repeat that sentence. And it's a sentence what comes from his book himself. Mm-hmm. It says, he had broken the most deep-rooted taboo and felt not guilty or anxiety or fear, but freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know how we were saying about Argento's relationship to Peter Neal in this film, the yeah. character Peter Neal, and how you could say he, Peter Neal's a stand-in for Argento yeah. to a degree. Yeah, he's only well, like an avatar for him, yeah. Well, here's another six degrees of separation. Is Peter Neal, in his book, Tenebrae, in this film, is the character in that book the stand-in for the author? Possibly, yes. Have I confused so, you? So is there too is, many stand-ins there? What's the term? Is uh, self-insert? I think yeah, so. Yeah, he's like a self-insert. He's inserted himself into the book. He's got psychology mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? Yes. Could I we think, get into that? I think so. I think he has put himself in the book in a way to kind of justify behaviour, justify right. his thoughts. Right. Because as we go on, we see quite a yeah, bit we of a, see we see quite a bit of a change in this Peter Neal. Yeah, because we we are introduced, hey, after the book burning, mm-hmm. you know, Peter Neal, he's jauntily cycling yeah. through New York on his way to yeah. who here's one who cycles to the airport. Well, I did think that <laughs> I, I got kind of immediate stalker vibes because he's being filmed from this car on the way yes. to the airport. What I like the most is he gets to the airport and then the car that's in front of him yes. opens the boot and gives him his luggage. So I guess he just really likes cycling because he cycled to the airport and then the guy's got out and given him his luggage. Is that a man after my own heart, Wayne? I suppose it is, yeah. Well, in film we trust Liam <laughs> very much does like cycling also. We are, we are sponsored by the Mountain Bike Do you know what? Since we've got more successful, I'm going to speak to uh, speak about myself in the third person now. So All right. In oh, film oh, we trust oh, okay Liam. Okay then, yeah. <laughs> so, but you said this stalker vibe, right? Yeah. He is being stalked. He has got this ex... Is it his ex-fiancé, ex-wife? Ex-fiancé, yeah. Ex-fiancé, Jane. I did, I did wonder at the beginning. This one called Jane, yes. Here's an interesting fact, Wayne. Mm-hmm. Jane, she's played by an actress called Veronica Lario. Right. Do you know why that's significant? Lario sounds familiar. No, no. Not, not the name? Let me tell you, Wayne. This is an interesting fact about the actress who plays Jane. Hmm? You know um, ex-Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi? Berlusconi, yeah. He was his wife. She, so she was First Lady of Italy. <laughs> Okay. But before that, she was in an Argento film. Right. That's a, that's a career path. You think that's where Berlusconi discovered her? <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. She, I, I like how she comes out, because we're in an airport, and she comes out and she kind of puts the sunglasses on. Classic kind of villain movies, big sunglasses she's wearing indoors. Argento is a type. These are all dark hair, the raven hair, do these Italian beauties, aren't kind of, they? Kind of the opposite with um, Hitchcock, because his was it was it was the blonde. blonde. It was the femme fatales. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, I, the icy blondes. I think he called them. Well, I suppose this is the the Mediterranean. This is the Italian version, isn't it? Exactly. The dark haired beauty versus yeah. you know the the elegant. The elegance of the, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, because because Amer- Hitchcock, you know, because obviously he went over and made his career in America, uh-huh. didn't he? So it was appealing to the audiences over there. But like I say, we go to Rome, or what's supposed to be Rome, but again, it's this very, very anonymous city. And we're already this very Hitchcockian start. He puts his bag down, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Takes a phone call, his bag, 
when he returns to it, there has been something placed into his bag. Is mm-hmm. his clothes cut up? Is there blood on his clothes? What is it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually what it is. It is. We see it later on. Actually, when he's on the plane to run, what I liked is the camera panned down and focused very heavily on the bag. Very Hitchcockian. Yeah, again, is it the MacGuffin? The, which uh, is, yes. MacGuffin, I'm like, this has been focused on. Is this a red herring? Is it a MacGuffin? But yeah, it turns out his clothes have been destroyed and there's blood in it, I think. I think there was blood. There's, it looks like it's red. It's like a kind of deep red. Yep. Mm-hmm. There that- we go. <laughs> so it looks like his Our clothes. Have, his not- clothes have been destroyed. Yeah, we get a lot of killer POV in this. Uh, this film, you should see as well. Our like I say, loves a POV. He shot. does the stalker vibes, the heavy breathing as well of the killer. Yes, because we'll have characters. We have a character here when he gets uh, when they get to Rome. She's so just kind of walking about, and there's a killer POV constantly. It's great how it always puts you in that frame of mind. It puts you kind of like how De Palma in Body Double put you into the position of being the voyeur, the creep. You the are creep, made. Yeah. You're implicated in the in the crime, so to speak. Yeah. And this film, Wayne, it's you, we said it's a who done it essentially. It's building up all these plots, all these storylines, all these threads, very much like Scream, even for you yeah. know a more contemporary audience. Because when we get to Rome, we meet this woman, another dark-haired beauty, isn't mm-hmm. she? She gets caught shoplifting the book tenebre. <laughs> Here's the thing: to get out of it, she gives her man, the, the manager her address. Mm-hmm. That's weird. She flirts with a bit as well. There's, well, quite, there's quite a bit of flirtation going on. Is that kind of the whole... Playing into the misogyny aspect. Not just that, but also with the slasher movies, the sexually promiscuous ones. Yes, They're the yes. ones that get offed first. Kind of playing around with themes of that as well. Yes. Because she turns out she's like a kind of serial shoplifter. And I think it's also trying to implicate maybe the manager is a suspect. Possibly, yes. That's what they're doing. They're building up suspects, mm-hmm. way like Scream did, mm-hmm. and they're building up suspects because who else do we meet when this woman leaves the shop after she gives this guy his her address? It's a homeless guy. The homeless guy attacks her, follows her home. Again, this suspect building. Mm-hmm. She's killed. She's killed in her apartment. Mm-hmm. We think maybe it's the homeless guy, but no, the homeless guy is watching her being killed. Yeah. What does the killer do? He stuffs pages of tenebrae into her mouth and slashes her throat. Talking about Jolly as well, did you happen to see what the killer was wearing on his hands? Would that be black gloves? A pair of black leather gloves. Always, did you know in an Argento flick, the black gloves are always his own hands. If that's his own hands he's using. Yeah, he likes killing women. <laughs> According to his critics, he does. Well, yes. I suppose to be fair, like that means he can be in pretty much any film, and you wouldn't like notice anything distinguishable on his hands. So it Wait. makes sense. He can kind of again. We talk about self-insert. That's essentially him inserting himself into his own movies. Do you know who'd be influenced by that kind of tactic, Wayne? Who's that? Tarantino. Tarantino. Tarantino would strangle one of his leading ladies in Inglorious Bastards because apparently he knew how to do it properly. It's that tells you that tells you a lot about Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good. Not thing only he... does he have a feet fetish, <laughs> he, has, he has a murdering women fetish. Yeah, she has a. Hell. I'm, a glad you men- I'm glad you mentioned Tarantino actually because that's that's a factoid that will come up later on. Tell me, just tell me now. Okay, yeah. well there is a kill. In this movie, I know where you're which me. is a great kill, we'll it's say it's kill. the one of the last kills in the movie. Right. Basically, you don't have to say the kill. Just yeah, yeah basically, what happens is a woman gets her arm chopped off. Very good. It's almost completely different to any other kill because it's so much more. It's like so much more abrupt and it's so much bloody. Basically, the arm gets cut off. You can see it's a fake arm. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah. It's a bit cheesy and she essentially sprays blood all over the place that is apparently tarantino's favorite on-screen kill of all films all films all films even once he's done himself when he actually killed somebody and you know we know tarantino's (laughs) been truthful because i think he would agree that or 
put forth that his films are probably the best films. Probably, yes. But he's been very forthright in that manner about yes. saying that because he says the thing he especially likes is how she paints the thing with blood because Tarantino loves a shootout. He loves a splatter fest. Well, ta- look, he was here, right? Tarantino is very much indebted to Italian cinema. He is, Whether yeah. it's Leone, who he, he's obviously, he's pontificated the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly is his favourite film of all time. And when it's consistently been his favourite film of all time. Very much a Jallo fan. He's very much a, even an American slasher fan. Mm-hmm. Tarantino's got both feet dipped in, dunked in with mm-hmm. the you know the genre and exploitation cinema. Because he has, he's essentially absorbed all of this. Because a lot of people have pointed out if you watch in, there's almost whole shots in his films which again come from genre yeah, yeah. cinema, the, the homages, the, yeah, the tributes. But he's absorbing all of this and he's kind of making it his own. Also, do you think that in films like this, in a right. lot of movies actually, blood always looks too light because blood is a very too kind of, red. Yeah, it's a very dark red color, but here it's kind of a, it's almost like a more vibrant red. But would you say that was a stylistic choice? Well, to make it that color, to placate our fears, Wayne, mm-hmm. tell us how you know the color of real blood. Well, I've seen my own blood. No, but <laughs> a, a mass quantity of blood. The most blood I've ever seen once in one go is when I was donating blood. So it's on a bag next to me. But it does not look this colour. Are you just trying to tell everybody how good of a person you are? <laughs> yes, sir. yes, I am. Mm. I, want, I want a badge, damn it. They don't know why you donated it, though. Yeah. Do you know one reason I think they actually had it that colour? Yes. Because it matches a, an important pair of shoes in the film. Would that be a dream sequence? Wouldn't yes, it would be. Or a fantasy sequence? Sort of. A flashback? Yeah. There is a, there's a, what I thought was either flashback or a dream, partly because of how it's filmed. It's got that kind of ethereal quality, almost like you're kind of floating and everything's not quite clear. Important flashback, but it's one of those things in this film where you don't quite understand it to begin with, but as the film goes on, it makes more sense in your mind. Like how the idea of plant, like you say, planting potential killers, because as you're going through the film, you're having to scratch them off the list. Exactly, Wayne. So, Peter Neal, right? Mm-hmm. He's played by the actor Anthony Frachowska. Yes. Right? That, that sounds kind of right. <laughs> right? But one of the first choices to play this Peter Neal role, do you know who that was? Was it Christopher Walken? Christopher Walken. Do you think that would have been as good? <laughs> Look, as much as I love Christopher Walken, and I do, you don't think it would have been way too distracting? Do you know what it reminds me of? Too Christopher Walken. Too Christopher Walken when we did Road Games. Yeah. Still one of our favourite episodes. Stacey Keach in the lead role. Absolutely killed it. Fantastic. Original choice, Sean Connery. Again, as much as I love Sean Connery, it felt like it would have been too distracting. It was like too big a name to be in a film like this. It would have been like Bond in a truck. Yeah, because in this film, in Tenebrae, the only actor I really recognised was, I think, John Saxon. John Saxon? He was about the only one I recognised. Dario Nicolodi? Who was he? She. Who was she, sorry? Oh, was she the assistant? Anne. I don't, I don't even think I even recognised her. That's Aji Argento's mum. That's Dario Argento's bird, his woman in real life. <laughs> the bird with the crystal plumage. Right? the crystal plumage. Yes, yes. yes. Very no, on point. I Honestly, I didn't even recognise her, but watching it back, yeah, it's kind of good, that kind of anonymity of the characters, yeah. so none of them stand out. Like, you know, if you had like a slasher movie and there's a very big name, you know they've got kind of a big part to play in it. Unless they're just trying to subvert that and they have them killed off straight away. So Anthony, who plays Peter Neal... Mm-hmm. One of the most difficult actors Argento has ever yeah, worked with. Yeah, I read with. that too, yeah. yeah. Any, any idea why? I, I couldn't read why he said it. Just, I, he just had so much hard, hard time Maybe it's a clash of egos. Maybe Possibly, just, yeah. Maybe, I don't know, Wayne. I was on set, no, it, it funnily might, enough. It might not have been. But he does give something of a kind of restrained performance. I think he's really good in this film. Especially, yeah, so do I. Especially on He's kind of soft-spoken. Doesn't, mm. you know, it doesn't shout very much. But I like how they didn't make him seem like a totally innocent guy. Like, there's a character, Maria, who, yeah. his landlord's daughter, who he 
seems to kind of creep on at some bits, like he's walking very close behind her. So it's like the plant in the seed that he's not mm. entirely an innocent character. He's not a goody two-shoes. Well, when Peter arrives to Rome, when mm. he gets off this flight, he arrives to a flock of critics. And I think this is thematically important because <laughs> this film is dealing with the relationship between the artist and critic. Yeah. I think that's probably the most overarching theme and purpose of this film, isn't it? Because there's a female critic at this press conference. And T- she, Til- Tilda? Tilda? Tilda. Tilda, yeah. And she derides him as sexist. <laughs> and this is what we were saying before. This is Argento's answering to those critics <laughs> or playing with his critics, so to speak. Because there's an actual important scene within this scene. What it suggests is, because that Tilda, right? After she's asked her question, he answers Luke, that's my work, not me. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm not saying you're the misogynist. I'm saying, I'm saying your work is misogynist. Well, mm-hmm. after they have this little back and forth, he off the record says, why are you being so hard to me? We were, you were so nice, you know, mm. in such and such place. And this is kind of playing with this idea. Do critics, when they're making these, you know, polemic points about a filmmaker, is it their real intention or or is as we'd say in a contemporary sense, is it just clickbait? Do these yeah. critics really care about the thematics of these things? Or is this just work? Because the scene here that we're talking about, yeah. it gives the impression of the kind of old friends, the kind of right. the kind of cordial, oh yeah, very nice to see you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, okay, right, okay, interview begins. And then she says, the quote is, Tenebrae is a sexist novel. Why do you despise women right. so much? So it's like when they go into critic mode, it's like a switch has been flicked. Right. And then they suddenly go into critical mode because... Is that what people want to see? People want this criticism. They want this derision. Well, they want that tabloid clickbait fodder, mm. don't they? Yeah. They want the sensationalist. They want, we, they want a headline, this person is a yeah. misogynist, this person is Peter a murderer. Peter is a misogynist. Exactly. That, and that'll be in big print on the newspaper. Because that'll want to get the views. And that's a quote like that, so direct, that's what made me think, yeah, this is basically right. the Brian De Palma body double. It's essentially a movie where they're poking fun at their, at their critics by basically doing what they've always done, maybe kind of ramping it up a little bit. Oh, it's ramped up, way. Yeah. It's ramped up. Because it's interesting. They also mentioned that the uh, the book, Tenebrae, is a big success in Italy, which is kind of like Argento's own thing, because obviously his Giallo films were a very big yeah, success there exactly. as well. So like I say, it is self-insert. I don't think you can deny that. No, Peter Neal is, is mm. essentially playing Argento in a, in a fictional way. He's playing with the themes of Argento, the the mm. tropes of Argento. He's even a horror or thriller novelist. And he's inserting film. that kind of self-insert yeah. into his book as well. And it's the critics, usually when they're portrayed in movies, you know, they're portrayed like this one, kind of arrogant, but ignorant, like they know better. Because there's a guy who spoke to later on, uh, and he does kind of the same thing. He's like, he has these very kind of aloof opinions, like he's kind of better than him. So let's set this up, right? More characters in this film. We have Anne, his assistant. Mm -hmm. We have his gopher, Johnny, who's kind of a a young man. (laughs) 17, 18, I'd say. Johnny, like Gianni. Johnny. Gianni, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Say Johnny. (laughs) This is where they find out the bloody piece of clothing. Mm-hmm. It's also when we're introduced to two detectives mm-hmm. on, of course, Wayne, as is a whodunit. One of the detectives is a huge fan of Peter Neal's work. Of his work, yes. Not just that, he's a huge fan of detective fiction. Specifically Agatha, Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes. Yes, of course. Which will be an important part of it's this It's actually a direct quote from, I believe it's The Hound of the Baskervilles. Incorrectly attributed to that. Oh, yes. It's, an, it's another... Uh, but uh, no, but this is where Peter is informed about the shoplifter's death. And the thing that comes across, why they tell this to Peter Neal is that the woman was killed. It was a straight razor. 
Yes. She was killed in a manner very similar to how, how somebody is killed in Peter Neal's book, aside from the whole exactly. page stuffing in the mouth, which for me at this point, that seems like a very flimsy connection. And there's letters, because Peter Neal keeps getting these letters after mm. each murder. This letter says there was only one answer to the fury that tortured him, which is a line from one of his books. Kind of looks like ransom notes, doesn't it? Because it's made by chopping out uh, yes. newspaper headlines and putting them in. Because Wayne the killer has to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. And we're talking sensationalism as well. Yes. Also, do you notice that's kind of... um. It's similar. Is that a similar to Basic Instinct as well? Because obviously, with Catherine Trammell, yes. someone was killed in a very similar manner to how it appeared in her book. Ah, uh, yeah, she was. She was using the book as an alibi for her killings, what kind of mimicked her own work. Yeah, so that's what brought the suspicion on her: the fact that the work kind of mirrored what had happened. But it was recently. also her alibi. Uh, but it was also her alibi because it would well, be yeah. too obvious, Wayne, to, yes, if she was killing, right. offing people in the same manner as her books. So at this point, did you think that the killer was some kind of deranged fan? I don't know. You would think that if you were a layman, Wayne, (laughs) Mm -hmm. let's say. But you kind of know there was going to be some twist. Mm -hmm. There was going to be some... Here's the thing in a whodunit. They're setting up all these cast of characters Mm. that it has to be one of them. Yes. It's not going to be a periphery. It's not Mm. going to be some random guy who's been in it two minutes. Mm -hmm. It has to be one of the central characters. Just like, as I mentioned, in Scream. Spoiler alert, if you've never seen Scream, I'm sure you have. (laughs) It It was Billy... It would have not worked if it was Henry Winkler in that film. Yeah, exactly. He's if, not if, a, if it was a character they'd bumped into for two minutes. Because they're not important enough. No. Essentially five people in this film it could have been. Yes. And that's the idea of planting so many seeds early on, right. making everyone seem kind of suspicious. Exactly. Because say you'd solved it very soon, because the uh, the lead detective is on this case. Right. He talks about his love of fiction novels, and he says everyone he's ever read, he's been able to solve it within the first like 30-odd pages. But he says with Tenebrae, he read the book, of course, he's a big fan. He couldn't actually guess who the killer was. Mm. Yeah. There we go. So, they, well, that's setting up. Is it a detective? Is it? Is it his love of fiction? Is he trying to mimic the fiction he's reading? But he can solve all these other crimes, but he can't solve this one, this real life one. And also, talk about misogyny earlier. Do you think it's kind of a strange line? Because this uh, detective, he's got a female assistant. Yeah. And he says at one point that they're trying to run after, I think they've seen a suspect on the street. And he says, he says, I should have had a tough male assistant who runs fast. <laughs> Bastard. Yeah. But what she comes back with about she says, you'd hate it. You'd have nothing to bitch about. Ooh, Again, if Argento lineup. didn't have these things in his film, what would critics go on about? Exactly. They wouldn't have any of this sensational, oh, he's this, he's this, he's that. They would not have these things to complain about. But importantly, Wayne, as you say that sentence, it gives the woman a point of view. Mm. It gives her an answer back. She just she doesn't just accept it, bows her head. In shame, she speaks back. Mm, she's given an identity. She's given agency. Exactly. She's given fortitude. She's giving mm. a bit of grit. Exactly. She don't. She's not just a wet blanket. Exactly. So you know, there's so the he's arc- kind of, yeah. So he's answering his critics by taking their criticisms and then twisting them and just firing them right back. So there, there you go. go and this was the first scene uh, round about here. We talked about the woman on the... It's like a woman on a beach. Well, let's set this up. Whilst this happens, this is what we were discussing as either the dream sequence slash flashback. But preceding this, or running adjacent to this scene, is a man, he's silhouetted, and he's grunting in distress. Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful woman on the beach... She's in a flowing dress. She's got very bright red high heels on. Mm-hmm. She's been followed by several boys, young boys. I'd say middle to early teens. Yeah. She slowly undresses in front of them, breasts showing. 
But here's the thing, it soon turns violent because it's this very sensual, this very taunting scene. And then eventually one boy slaps her on the face, then runs off. Mm. The other boys, they chase him, they hold him down. She kicks him, and here's the important thing, she puts her high heel in his mouth. It's like a choking kind of manoeuvre. Choking, very phallic also. Yeah, so in a way that's also shown about in these movies like this, the woman is not always the victim. Right. It shows that the male can be the victim as well. And it's a kind of act of humiliation because like you say this woman has been almost kind of luring these boys in and then she's turned on one of them again she's got these distinctive red shoes on exactly the color of the blood we see in the film you you know um in a suspiria Mm -hmm. the psychedelic the kaleidoscopic imagery of that film yes you could almost take that back to the film the red shoes Mm -hmm. that was very operatic i wonder if because argento was so influenced by the red shoes as was martin scorsese that the red shoes of course it's very iconic it looks very vibrant it's Mm. notifiable for tenebrae but i wonder if it was also not back to the film specifically the red shoes yeah, it could have been, yeah. Because it's one of those distinctive things that yeah. points out. Especially not just because of how vibrant the colour is, but how the film continually draws attention to it. Exactly. It's always focusing on red shoes. We're always seeing the red shoes. So it's one of those images that just sticks in your mind throughout the film. So this is setting up as well. This is very psychological. This isn't just a placed in scene for effect. It's not just a look fancy or mm-hmm. look great. It's playing into the psychology. This is a very, very important scene. And it plays mm-hmm. into the psychology of one of our cast of characters, mm-hmm. Wayne, which will pay off down the line. One of our suspects, because it plants a seed of, here's an event that's happened here of some importance. We just don't know why right. or to whom, because we don't know anyone who's in the flashback scenes. We've never seen any of them before. No. We like, don't even know if they're real. No, The exactly. way it's shot, as you said, dreamlike. Mm-hmm. Maybe it may all be on one person's head. Mm-hmm. May it may well be. Could be another MacGuffin sequence. Right. Possibly. You, you, you like the word MacGuffin? Sounds you, delicious. <laughs> what a muck muffin. Sorry, was that a really bad joke? Yeah, that was terrible. Well that's what that's what people tune in for. Terrible. <laughs> Our fantastic sense of humour. This is where actually this is a great scene. This is one of the most influential scenes. Tilda, who was the report familiar, seems to be in like a kind of open relationship with this uh, this other woman, or they at least live together. In the in the same apartment. Tilda refers to her as a prostitute. Yes, yes. I think it's more she's uh, sexually loose, should we say? Basically, yes. Because is Tilda portrayed as kind of like a video nasty sense, it's kind of very more uptight and repressed and more more prudish in a sense. Tilda's the film critic, the one who's questioned him on his misogyny. Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. And this is where we get a camera shot, I guess in like a crane shot where well, well let's set up first because this is here's one of the most important parts of the film. Before I know where you're going to go, which is a very fantastic a scene win. Tilda and this woman, who Tilda calls a prostitute, they're in this bar. The woman, the loose woman, Wayne, is trying to pick up these men. Mm-hmm. Now, this woman has never met a top that will can cover her breasts properly. And <laughs> she has perennially got a nipple loose. Yes. Of course, that's Argento's little flick to his misogyny tag, right? Mm-hmm. We get that. We understand that. But why is this important? This is thematically important in this film because Tilda and the woman Tilda calls a prostitute, this is what Argento was aiming for. Because one of the themes of this film is homosexuality. And Argento, he done this because Italy is such an orthodox Catholic country, especially back then. 
in Italian culture. And he purposely added it into his film because he didn't want any shame attached to it. Hmm. He wanted it normal and without shame. And this is why Argento sees that this film got an 18 rating because the people had a problem, in his words, with the sexual diversity of this film. Ah, right. So right. it's not just the violent content, it's... He again, th- yes. again, this is the thing that comes up on Video Nasty Month over and over again. It's the, not the fact; it's not so much the content; it's how uncomfortable it made right. people feel. Right. So he, here we have Argento tagged misogynist, tagged all these things, but in his head, he's the a liberator. Yeah. He wants the like homosexuality to be expressed without sin, with without any shame attached to it, and this is what he's trying to get over with this scene. Yeah, like he's shown he's the more liberal-minded individual. But and you, he's, he's like, right, we're just going to shove this right in your faces. Right, so you set up, because I know what scene you were going to set up, mm. and it's a very good scene. You yeah. set up. It's essentially a scene where the camera makes its way, it goes like goes out a window, and it makes its way over the building, kind of over the it's roof. It's a crane shot. It's a crane shot, yeah. basically, yeah. Kind of filmed almost like, say, there was a killer on your roof. Right. Because that's where I feel like a lot or of this Or scaling movie's, the building. Yeah, a lot of this movie's atmosphere your intention is established by the fact a lot of what we see is from the killer's POV. Right. A lot of POV shots, yep. like you say, hand shots, heavy breathing shots. Do you know that scene? It took about, I think, two and a half days to yeah, film it's about that three shot. days to shoot that but, scene. Yeah, American distributors wanted it cut, but Argento flat out refused. Yeah, why? Here, one of the greatest set pieces of this entire film, and the Americans wanted it cut. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that about? Is it because they thought it was unnecessary? But that's the thing. A lot of scenes are not necessary plot-wise, but they are for the atmosphere, for example, to establish tone, to establish mood. It's it, one of the bo- it's one of the best scenes in this entire film. Yeah, is it just one it cut because there's no deaths, there's no dialogue, something like this? But wow. again, it's it's such a great it's so memorable and I think it's actually been it's been aped in quite a lot of other movies, that kind of classic crane shot over a building. Exactly. So this is setting up the killing of Tilda, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the, the morally loose woman, Wayne? Mm-hmm. I forgot her name. So. The, the, the other one. Uh, did she, was she even named? She might have been. I can't remember. I can't actually remember, yes. I can't remember. But Tilda, yeah, Tilda and her friend, we'll say. Right, so this killing of Tilda. As we scale the building, as you said, we go from window to window, this craning up, this very, very technically proficient film Mm. Tilda she takes her top off puts it back on here comes the killer he's got a blade because that that is his MO he kills people with a switchblade straight razor yeah goes right through her t-shirt we see her face exposed through the strands of t-shirt great shot I think this is the poster for the film as well it's one of them yeah whenever if you look up this movie and go to images this is one of the first ones that comes up and slashes her in the throat we also get to the prostitute She's also sliced and falls head back into the mirror. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Is that killed by her own vanity? In a way, yes. Also because mirrors are almost a theme in this movie because the one of the themes is dualism is what yes. he's talking about. Different identities, kind of people complement each other. Like you say, doppelgangers. Also, can I just point out, you know in a movie when someone gets killed and they fall into glass or through a window, how yeah. loud it is? It's like an explosion. When they, whenever, they fall, whenever they fall through a window. Good sound design. Yeah. But like you say, with the mirror, kind of the reflection of ourselves, again, being killed by your own vanity, you could Do you think say. that's what they're going for? I think so, yes. But like you say, with well, with mirrors, you see a reflection of yourself, and that's what is what uh, comes up a lot in this yeah. film. This is a good bit to splice in, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack of this film, mm-hmm. fantastic. Absolutely, By yes. Goblin, the, the, the group Goblin. Goblin, win. yes. Yep. Goblin first worked with Argento in 1975 for Deep Red. 
Oh, right. Prior to that, Goblin was a struggling progressive rock band. Okay. And do you know in this film, the the kind of motif of the soundtrack is very particular? Mm-hmm. They're actually saying pure through a vocoder. I heard about that, yeah. yeah. It's the Italian word for fear, I yeah. think it is. And so it's just coming through, so that's kind of like a sub, like a kind of subliminal message. It's kind of this motif for the music, which is this repeated on constant, very effective. And mm. to be honest, I never actually realised it was a voice. No, I didn't I didn't either. Did it's you? one of those, if I, when I watched it back the second, even watching it back the second time, I didn't really pick up on that. And I think this is Goblin's first soundtrack with Argento, where they use drum machines as well. So it was kind of, for them, almost kind of like a breakthrough. Because, again, they had a breakthrough with Argento earlier. Now they're introducing all of these elements that they weren't using beforehand. Yeah, and Goblin actually split up in 1978, but they reconvened in 1982 for Tenebre, and this was the first time they recorded with using their names. Not Goblin, they used their names. Simonetti, Pignatelli, and Morante. So it was more a per- more of a personal project, maybe, yeah, for them? Maybe. We spoke a little bit about the critics. This is where we get another one. Uh, Cristiano Berti who I think made his name in was like Hammer Horror Films. He's got that look. He's very like a very tall, very gaunt man. He looks like he would have been in those Hammer Horror Films with like Christopher Lee. And he would have fit well there, wouldn't he? Peter Cushing kind of thing, yeah. And it's a similar kind of thing. He's talking to him about the book, to Peter Neal, and it's like he completely misunderstood the themes of it. And he's given these ridiculous interpretations, which for me, again, a metaphor for people who misinterpreted his films, made false assumptions, and almost created problems that didn't actually exist. Well, I think that it's, Critic actually says in this TV appearance, Tenebria is about human perversion and its effects on society. But mm. Peter Neal obviously doesn't see it this way, does he? He no, says he just about somebody who's mad. Exactly. But it's like it's almost like with us because like you know we watch a lot of films. Do you mean we, we're reading too much into things? Yeah, it's the thing. But and you think the critics doing the same? Well, that's what we do. We kind of deep dive into it, and you'll say, "Oh, do you think maybe they were intending this? Maybe they didn't. It's just an analysis we have." But as we always say, Wayne, does mm-hmm. it matter what they intended? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But we are. But we are. But we're usually a lot where we're a lot more complimentary than. Cristiano is anyway. I hope you're not um, <laughs> saying we're like Cristiano. No, no, no. We're, we're the opposite of Cristiano. Yeah. <laughs> What's the opposite of Cristiano? Um, Cristiani. Christi- <laughs> well, we're plural Cristiano. I'm very, very. We're sorry. plural. Yeah. No, we're not like that guy at all. But also, this uh, very, very important. The most, probably the most important part of this film. Uh, John Saxon's character Bulmer, who is Peter Neal's literary agent. Yes. Almost loses his hat. Who'd have thought, Wayne? <laughs> Who'd have thought in a Jallo film a trilby would yeah. be of such significance? Yeah, because we should we should point out earlier in the film, Bulmer's got this uh, trilby hat, which he's very very proud of. He, he wears it very well, yeah, John. And, and he does. And Peter Neal makes this kind of offhand comment about won't it fall off? But Bulmer it, demonstrates he does he, kind of like a head twirling. He, thing. he rolls his head, yeah, and the hat doesn't come off. But then he puts it on like a like a stewardess, like a trolley. Yes, <laughs> and it almost gets taken away from him. Is Bulmer like the comic relief of this film? Kind he, of. He's yeah. almost like a slapstick character. He is like a comic foil. Yeah. yeah, like he almost loses his heart. And I did write uh, our favorite word down: foreshadowing. Right. Well, so the, because well, he's just saying, "Oh, you know, I've got this, and this will never happen." That's almost like it's. It's tempting you to think, oh, well, I'm going to keep an eye on that for later on. I never on. thought of this way, but when you said there, I'm foreshadowing losing his hat, mm. do you think Argento's missed a trick? Do you think Bulmer really should have been decapitated? I could have been, yeah. yeah. That would have been good, actually. Cause that then, would, yes. Yeah, because then he'd never been able to wear a, well, I would say never wear a hat again. Probably well, like, be, he, he probably a hat. He probably won't be able to do most things again after he's been well, decapitated. He, technically, to be he still could have wore a hat, Wayne. It just mm-hmm. wouldn't be attached to his body. <laughs> yeah, no, that would have been a bit unfortunate. Yeah. But that's the interview with, uh, with Cristiano. So, yes, it goes badly. All of his interviews have gone badly so far. 
It's, it's been a very bad time for him. He's probably still jet lagged as well, poor bugger. Here's the thing: you know, you know how we're always on about, uh, or critics are on about, favorable critics anyway. That Argento is this directorial master. Mm. We can't get past the fact that there is cheesy or badly written elements in this film. Mm. Yeah, there is this time when. Peter sees Jane. They think they see her because, of course, Peter's been pestered with phone calls by Jane, this presence of Jane in his life, his ex-fiance, right? But what happens is, is he looks out the window, his hotel window, and they actually think they see Jane drive by. So she's supposed to be in New York. They think they see her in Rome. Okay, that's bad writing. What is the chances that you randomly look out the window and the person you think is stalking you is suddenly just driving Such by? an unbelievable coincidence. I'm sure there is a better way that could have been written. Well, like maybe he sees someone he thinks is her yeah. and then eventually it turns out to be her. Yes. So it's like kind of blowing a reality. Yeah, that did seem very con- kind of contrived. Did you not think? A bit, so I yeah. did think. I was like, oh man, that, that's a bit clunky there, Argento. I mean, I suppose she was meant to be following him, but like, why would she know to drive by at that very moment just as he was looking out of his window? And as much of this film is masterfully made, there is a few clunkers along the way. Mm. I thought, did you, maybe? Mm. I'm glad you brought that up, Steve. What did you think of like the acting? Now, look, this was film was dubbed, wasn't it? Yeah, you can never tell. It was dubbed. a dubbed film, but it seemed like a lot of the actors had a problem where they had trouble kind of emoting with their faces. Mm. So it kind of meant they had to do a lot of kind of moving around. Like a lot more of it, I felt, was expressed through body language than facial expression. But we could get very Cristiano here, Wayne, because <laughs> if we want to read too much into it, you could almost make the argument, is Argetno ever interested in reality? Because mm-hmm. he, he would obviously famously go on to make the film Opera. Yes. Is he concerned about the internal and how that manifests externally? Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is essentially an operatic version of reality rather than reality itself. Like an exaggerated version right. of it. So once you have that argument, reality goes out the window and mm-hmm. it no longer matters or is of importance how they are physically acting. Either that or you could just say that and just have the worst actors in the world. It's possible, yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying the actors are bad. I'm saying some of the performances were a bit odd. I'm not talking about the line delivery because, again, it's dubbed. It's not really fair to judge a dubbed performance like it would an actual natural performance. Or you have like the the building manager's daughter who comes to fix his water, is it? Uh, Maria, it's the, it's Maria? The, the taps, yeah. I think, yeah, the, the water taps or something. And yeah. I think Peter Neal reversed to his jailbait. Yeah. When yeah. Anne says, are you interested in her or something? That's what I said earlier, because he kind of creeps along behind her as she comes in. So it's like not establishing Peter Neal as this kind of goody-two-shoes, angelic character. It does give him a bit of a nuance, maybe? maybe nuance not, the right word no, there, no, that's probably not the right word. A bit of moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity. That's a better one, yeah. That's more important to the film, Wayne. Exactly. It's all about moral ambiguity. A bit, a bit of moral ambiguity. But it's here where... Is this kind of the first scene we're introduced to Maria? It's around Maria, about yes. Maria. Because Peter may not take an instant liking to Maria, apart from the obvious, mm-hmm. but Johnny does. Mm-hmm, he does, Johnny yeah. the gopher. Because he, ta- <laughs> he's, he is a gopher. He's a gopher. He is a gopher. I suppose he is kind of the general lackey, yes, isn't he? Yes, he is a gopher. <laughs> Can we just call him that for the rest of Johnny this? Johnny the Gopher. Right, he's the, uh, go- the go- Johnny, Johnny, the- Johnny the Gopher drives <laughs> off. He takes her on his motorbike with yes. him. Here's a nice thing. Here's a nice touch, right? We're all about visuals. It- Argento's all about the visual setup, right? Mm-hmm. We get an image of the killer's house. We don't know who the killer is yet. Mm-hmm. He leaves his house. He forgets something. What does he forget? He forgets his keys. And in nice Argento visual storytelling, he shows them keys being forgot by knocking in rhythm against the door that they are attached to. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So this killer, he's scouting prostitutes. Remember, he's got this thing about the the degeneracy of society. Mm -hmm. He's very much Travis Bickle. We've explained these types, haven't we, Wade? He he even says himself, uh, I think it's either on a note or via phone call, he's he's taking out the corruptors. The corrupt... No, the corruptors is specifically Peter Neal. This Mm. guy is killing... Can you call him a fan of his novel? I don't know. Possibly. A critic of his novel. A critic, yes. Because he sees Peter Neal, because he's creating these characters, he's creating these motifs in his films, he sees Peter Neal as the ultimate corruptor. Mm -hmm. So we know he's got this thing, he calls them aberrant. These yeah. aberrant behaviours in society. And so he goes scouts these prostitutes, but he can't scout them. He can't pick them up because he's forgot his keys. Why he can't? I don't know. Why can he not pick them up? I've no idea, but like you, you say... You tell me. What, I don't know You chose all. the film when you explained to me. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to happen. Yes. Well, you should have You should have foreshadowed it, Wayne. <laughs> I've already foreshadowed I, I I hit the foreshadowing button with Bulmer's Trilby hat. Yeah, well, it's a, it's it's a, a good little Quite a magnificent hat, yes. It's worthy. But, it's, but we have a thing with, um, like you say, with Maria here. Around about the scene, she gets chased by a dog. Do you think this was almost kind of a weirdly out-of-place out of place scene here? Did it make structural sense? I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Mm-hmm. But, Wayne, it mm-hmm. is one of the best set pieces of the film. Where she's walking home, she falls out with Johnny for whatever reason. Gets Johnny, off, Johnny the gopher, you mean? Johnny the gopher. Mm-hmm, yeah. Gets off his motorbike. She goes. She walks off. Mm-hmm. Behind this gate, this cage, is a Doberman. Yeah. Of course, This we aren't far removed from the 70s. In the 70s, Dobermans, Alsatians, they had a bad rap. Yeah, they did, They were yeah. the pit bulls of the 70s, <laughs> yeah, weren't basically, they? Yeah, basically, yeah. So, this Doberman, it's running against this fence it's it would maul her if it could get to her essentially so after this she throws a stick at the cage wrong move maria bad move yes it angers the dog even more it chases her through this town through this city nondescript city Mm -hmm. through this park yeah yes we finally get to this house it's very modern this is very glass it's very mid-century modern very incongruous to what we've seen so far right but most importantly when she gets into this when she's got done being mauled when she gets into the house she makes her way into is it the basement would you say basically it looks like a basement it yeah. looks like a basement yes she finds all these photos what the killers took of all his victims yeah at this point were you like me pausing the film and looking around everything you could see in the room because we see that there's a tenebrae book there yes there's a tripod as well yes. so we're talking a bit of voyeurism there yeah. and like you say scattered on the table almost like they wanted someone to find it but yes. like uh, yeah pictures of the women that have been killed earlier on are you saying them photos are conveniently placed there for the viewer in a sense yeah, yeah, it's almost I like see. they've just been laid out for people to uh, for people to pick up afterwards. You'd almost think she was going to be the victim. You would think this was the time when she was going to die. Is it? It possibly is, Wayne. Mm-hmm. But she does get out of that basement. She puts the evidence into her skirt. She is actually quite savvy. She here. stuffs a few of it in her pocket. Yeah, she yeah. gets them. She gets into the main house. But what happens when she gets into that main house? And this, you've got to remember, this house, Wayne, it's the future. It's very modernist. This isn't your classic gothic mansion. No, it's very, it's like a shiny futuristic as well. She gets upstairs and the killer is there. Killer's point of view? Of course, we don't see him because no. it's a whodunit. We're not allowed to know yet, but we see it entirely from the killer's point of view. She's kind of backing up as he's coming towards her. I like how she took the 
evidence out of her pocket and threw it at What the him. hell is that going to do? What was do? she expecting? That friend of him it was a rock or like a crowbar? But what maybe, was she expecting? Yeah. Maybe she thought if she didn't implicate him in the murders, she would leave. He would leave her alone. Maybe. Yeah. I think my only thought was, okay, take this evidence. I'll go away. I'll not tell anybody. Exactly. But she must have had this lingering suspicion that the killer's not going to let you leave. You've come into his house. He knows where he lives now. Yeah. So, well, I mean, maybe she doesn't know he's the killer, but he's a killer. But you know how I said maybe it looked like she was actually going to get away? Mm. Not so fortunate, way. No, unfortunately Chase not. Chase her into the garden with that terrific score by Goblin mm-hmm. under their own names. And then she's taken out by an axe. In the garden, in her stomach. Right. Now, all the kills we've seen so far, they've been the straight razor route. Yep. Because maybe the killer is, again, taking out corruptors or he wants to emulate what's in the book. Yes. But Maria's killed by an axe. Do you think that's because Maria was not an intended victim? I think so. You think so still as well? Still a blade, yeah. though, Wayne. Still a blade. It's still a blade. Of course. So he's very much on point. He's yes. not, we've, we've not deviated. <laughs> he didn't go from... He didn't shoot her or anything. Yeah, he didn't shoot her. So yes. we're still kind of on We're on yeah. point. As, so it's almost like he killed her, still a blade, like you say, but almost killed by a different weapon because it was, was an impulse this kill. was not part of the plan yeah because maria would only got killed because she came around to the house it was an impulse kill impulse kill exactly yes so pierre neil after this death he gets a letter and the letter wayne says i grieve for this child her death was the only one i could be free to go on i will eliminate all those perverts and the great corrupter yeah it sounds like the moral crusade that we've talked about before again like your travis bickle kind of thing and this is where peter thinks the killer is the critic due to him calling tenebrae previously as we mentioned a novel about aberrant behavior well aberrant behavior does play a big part in this especially kind of sexual aberration because again these movies where they're talking about people who are again like women who are sexually liberated for example they're often the ones that are killed off first but here's the thing is Peter Neal psychologically the ultimate mark in a sense? Is he the one who is influenced by his own material? Because what does he do after this? They go to the critic's garden, they turn it into a steak, steak out, mm-hmm. almost like a character from his own detection novels. So what you're saying, like he's almost like kind of scouting material for a future book, maybe? Because he takes Johnny the Gopher with him. <laughs> they're, they're in the garden. Johnny says, this is boring. Pe- <laughs> Sorry, Johnny. Yes, sorry. How many times do you have to stake out a murderer? I'm sorry if this is your 10. His whole job is to follow him around and do stuff for him. This is boring. But but here's the thing. Peter, he says, all detections are boring. But if you cut out all the boring bits and keep the rest, you've got a bestseller. Mm. He's a savvy old man, that, yeah, that is a, That is a very, very good point. Because like when you see um, like movies of police stakeouts, it is depicted as being very boring. Because they just exactly. basically sit there in a car, don't they? Exactly. Bunch of fat dudes with donuts. Just sitting there with coffee and donuts. Coffee, donuts. Drinking late into the night. Yeah. But he's right, you have to clear all of that out and get to the good stuff. Exactly. Do you you think that's almost a comment on, Argento's comment on his own films, Mm -hmm. where people think they're salacious, for example, and he's like, look, here, here, I'm laying it out to you right now. Mm. I'm cutting out all the boring bits, and all you're left with is the gory goodness exactly be thankful motherfuckers if it was was the inverse nobody would go to see the film if it took all of the salacious killings and then just put the boring stuff in why would you want to go and why would you pay to see that Eh? antonioni made a career 
Tarkovsky made a career. Gus Van Sant. <laughs> yeah, we're dealing in different circles. Yes, I know. Different circles. All filmmakers I really like. That wasn't a slight on them. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yes, ju- I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah, it's the it's the different style. But when you watch something like this film, there's a certain yeah a certain thing you expect from it. You could say. Well, Johnny, Mister Gopher, he watches as somebody axes the crick in the head because mm-hmm. he runs off from old Peter, goes into the house because he's bored. Because he's bored, yeah. of course. This is. It's that classic thing you've seen where. We again we see the critic Cristiano being killed from the killer's point of view. It's that thing with the backing up, and it's some variant of "It's you," or you know, like "I know it was you." Yes. So they're familiar with the killer. Yeah. We don't know. Who, we still don't know who it is yet. But, but it's that a, extra level but of intrigue. Double edged thing. We are for the last twenty, ten possible minutes. We're led to believe Cristiano is the killer. The critic mm. is the killer. Mm-hmm. Is he the killer? Is he the killer? Yeah, oh, that's what I've, I've even written down my notes. It says he gets axed in the head, so he can't be the killer then, right? Yep. But we find Peter conveniently when conveniently bashed in the head, knocked out on the ground. Yeah, convenient. That old chestnut, huh? Yeah. Peter knocked himself out over there. Well, he was bored as well, as yeah, I was. Bored. He, he was that <laughs> bored, he fell over. He, fell he, just, he just wanted to sleep through this thing. Yeah. Also, it's around about here. I think it might have happened earlier. We get the recurring uh, eyeball shot. I guess because we're talking about image or perception or something like that. Or just because that's kind of a... It's a striking visual, like when you see someone's eye opening. There was a great um, scene in Argento's opera with eyes, when he, the eyes are like pinned open with needles. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. I think I've actually heard about That's that. A great scene. A kind of clockwork orangey kind of yeah. style. Yeah, pretty much similar to that, yeah. I suppose, yeah. And this is where we get our, our dream woman again. I, I call the dream woman the woman from the... The red shoes. Yeah, the red, the sh- red yeah. shoes. Yeah, the woman with the red shoes, yeah. Uh, she's like in a, a garden and she gets murdered. She gets stabbed in the stomach. Again, killer POV. But what do we also find out about this time? Importantly, Bulmer mm-hmm. has been having a relationship with, with his client's ex, Jane. Mm-hmm. With Jane. Mrs. Berlusconi. Jane, who just conveniently pops up every now and then. It's interesting because we've gone to Bulmer now, and he's on the phone. I think he's trying to convince Peter to close a deal or something like that. I do like how they've suddenly thrown in this little bit about that agent classically being portrayed as a kind of a slimy money grabber who doesn't care about his client's safety. Because up until this point, him and Peter have seemed pretty tight, pretty close. Like it's almost like a, just like a friendship rather than a partnership. John Saxon actually worked quite a lot of it in Italy, didn't he? He did a lot of Italian films. He was, yeah. he was in a lot of exploitation films. He, I think a lot of people forget actually that he was in Nightmare on Elm Street. He was, yeah, he was the uh, the, the police chief. Well, I mostly known for uh, Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. Th- that would have been course. the first major film I said I would see him in. But he was one of those faces he, who just he's probably one of those actors for a lot of people. They don't know his name, but they know his face because he just did pop up in a lot of things. He's quite an underrated talent. I he, actually like seeing him in everything. I do. I yeah. think he, he was a good little character. In, he was a good was character he? actor in this. But when he had his when he has his trilby on. Well, the trilby makes a man. I mean. yeah, but that trilby never falls off, you see. Do you think... Here, actually, here, here, here's one. Do yeah. you think that's a play on the man in the grey suit? Very, he met, very looked out at time, didn't he? He had the grey suit. He looked like a man from the 50s. He had the trilby on. He looked like the man with the grey suit. It really does set him apart in this film because yeah. you don't see anyone else wearing anything like that. Because we're supposed to be in the future, as Argento apparently mm-hmm. says, 15 years in the future. He looks 20 years in the past. <laughs> T- from eight, from eighty, from eighty-two. You're telling me this is the look of the future. Did you, did you, did you know one of the reasons why the trilby went out of fashion? Uh, why is that? Because JFK never wore a hat. Oh, really? A lot of men would wear a hat prior to JFK's inauguration, oh. and JFK was one of the kind of uh, uh, he was a fashion icon, wasn't he? Mm. He was a popular man. Yeah. He never wore a hat. 
from then on, men started wearing hats less. Because when you think of like the 20s and 30s, there's that great shot. I think it's uh, in New York and it's a shot down on a crowd. Yeah, and they're a all whole bunch of men. Going, they've all got exactly the same hat yeah. on. It's interesting what influences like popular styles at the time, isn't of, it? Of course, when I say this, wearing a hat at the moment. You're wearing a hat at the moment yeah, <laughs> for, for whatever reason. I don't know. Because we're inside. We're inside. But this is, we have a scene with Bulmer in the city square. And this is what I was alluding to earlier about the whole thing looking empty. Usually in a film like this, this place would be packed full because he's waiting for Jane. Like I'd assume say. it's Jane, isn't Jane, it? Jane, yes, because he's he's having an affair with Jane. Well, I mean, having- Jane's not with Peter anymore. So I guess, yeah, they're just together. It did make me wonder, has he been like in on this the whole time? Is he part of this, some kind of conspiracy? It, it's just, it's completely there to facilitate the whodunit approach. Yeah. Because, of course, if Jane is having an affair with Bulmer, you're thinking, okay, maybe Bulmer's off in the... Yeah. Maybe he's trying to get Peter out of the picture. He here. wants to kill Peter off exactly. so they can ru- so they can run off and be together. Not like at this point Peter is actually any impediment to that. This is what you've got to understand in Who Done It's Wayne. Mm-hmm. The all these cast of characters, all this ensemble cast, they're really there to facilitate the denouement of the film. Yeah. They're not exactly there to build up great depth of character. No. They're there to uh, cast suspicion on everybody around the protagonist in the hope in the hope Wayne that the protagonist in this case Peter Neal is the innocent party because mm. if we're working from that assumption we know it's somebody in his orbit that is going to be the killer mm. so what it's doing it's making everybody a suspect it says it in Scream I'm go- why have Scream Scream keep coming I don't know I've don't never know, even because, watched it because, it because it was so self-referential everybody's maybe. a suspect Yes, everybody's yeah. a suspect, especially when you know you want to try and get to know a certain character. A lot of them are going to be killed off soon anyway, right? So at least you can take them off the list. And if we're going on aberrant behaviour, we could you could make the argument, okay, that's moral, uh, that's modern behaviour. This mm. is people are becoming morally loose. And what sets Bulmer apart from everybody else? He dresses a man out of time from mm-hmm. the past. Yes. So you would think a man from you know, 20 years, 30 years prior, may feel that modern culture 482 is acting aberrantly. Mm, exactly, yeah, right. because it's it's the different time periods, what's exactly. differently, what's socially acceptable, the whole conception of this month as well. So it would make thematically sense at this point, with what we know, that Bulmer could be the killer. He could be the killer, yes. Exactly. Because at this point, the eye of suspicion has been cast him, because you know, he's been out of this film for quite a right. while. It kind of pops up every now and then. Like you say, pops up enough times to be considered a legitimate suspect. Exactly. And now we have more of a reason to suspect him. But he's milling about in this... I think he's waiting for Jane in this square. Like I say, it's very empty, very lifeless. There's barely anybody about. It's a miserable-looking place. And a woman approaches him, and this is where we see him get stabbed. Again, killer POV. And I did think, how has no one seen this? Because it's not like they're being crowded out or anything. But but what's really interesting about this scene, you know that he somebody comes up, stabs him, as you mentioned. Yeah. A scene prior, he gifts Jane with a pair of red shoes, like the woman in those dream sequences. The woman in the dream sequence, yeah. Well, when he gets stabbed, we see this Hitchcockian, I'm going to say a Hitchcockian shot. It's probably used other times, but Strangers on a Train famously used it in its intro when you see the protagonist and the antagonist both meeting and all you see is their shoes and you can tell their person Personality. One's got the business like black plain shoes. Mm. One's got the, I think they're white and black. Are they possibly? They're more, they're more dandyish, yeah. more flamboyant anyway. And this is doing the same. This woman, there's somebody anyway, walking up to Bulmer, John Saxon's character, mm. and they have red shoes. They're they're observing him being killed, yes. and they walk off. And this all happens without 
as seeing who that woman is who is who is watching him being murdered. Because as usual, the killer is being kept you know, completely off screen right. because we're always put in the point of view of the killer. So it's us left to wonder who is doing this, why are they doing this. But you did miss the most important part of the whole scene. Bormer's hat falls off. Bastard So hat. I guess he was lying about that. Like you say, it would have been a good trick if he'd been decapitated because then it would have been kind of definitively off. I'd like to know what went through Argento's head to make that a <laughs> point of plot. Where, where did the hat Maybe Maybe there was just somebody hated who wore, used to wear trilbies all the time. He's like, well, I'll show you. It's actually a fun little aside, though. It is, but I, I just like that. Like he says, it never falls off. I'm like, right, I'm going to have to spend the rest of this movie not working out who the killer is. I'm going to have to spend the rest of this movie looking at this guy's hat. <laughs> Yeah, whatever, I suppose. It's great writing, though. It is great, great writing, great yes. Writing. Like you say, she gets gifted the shoes, matches the colour of the blood. Oh, yeah, because you think it's way too red. Mm. Is that I what you I think it is way too red, yes. But here's it, Johnny the Gopher. Mm-hmm. He, goes, <laughs> he goes back to that modernist house to try mm. and remember what happened. Not, so the, bo- not so boring anymore now, is it, Johnny? To what happened to the critic. But And when he goes back, here's the thing, right? He recalls the critic saying he was the murderer. Mm. So this person who murdered the critic... The critic's telling him he was the murderer. Mm-hmm. But he said, but who killed him? Who exactly. killed the critic? If the critic is the murderer, who killed him then? Johnny won't know for much longer, Wayne, because he's strangled in the back of his car. He is. Again, Does turn to see his killer. Yeah. Again, not an intended kill. Not an intended kill. Not, done with a, not even done with any kind of blade, because he's there. He's there garroted this time, isn't he? Garroted. You like that one? I do like that word, garroted, yes. Who, to- who told I was, you that I was, word? I was waiting to see if you reacted to the word garroted who, there. Who, to- who, who told you that one? Research. Research. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes fan? Yeah, I love Sherlock Holmes. Who doesn't like Sherlock Holmes? I've never read a Sherlock Holmes book. <laughs> like films and TV shows and stuff, though. That's but cheating. Uh, <laughs> but like I say, he turns around, yeah, he does get a good look at the killer. That's almost frustrating, that, isn't it? Like, well, he, he knows, knows but he the knows, audience but we doesn't. don't. We yeah. don't. Yes, he gets to see who the killer is, but we don't. So that's, that's, that's Johnny the Gopher. So we're getting to the denouement of this film. Yeah. Jane, after this killing of Johnny... After this kill and Bulmer's gone as well, the cast of characters are, are thinning out. We're thinning mm. the herd now. Mm. Jane makes a call to Anne, Dario Nicolodi. She's saying she's suicidal. She wants to explain everything she's done. Okay, this is implicating Jane in the case, isn't yes. it? Yes. We're trying to think, oh, okay, Jane, she's, you know, red shoes. She must be the killer, etc., etc. Well, Jane waits for Anne with a gun in hand in her own house mm-hmm. or the house she's staying in. An axe comes through the window, cuts her arm off, then an axe to their back, spraying yes. the walls in blood. This is the scene you were saying Tarantino mm. thinks is the best. Yeah. Do you want to set it up? Yeah, well, how different does it feel to the rest of the kills? Because a lot of them are kind of understated kills. Yeah. But this is like, this is the kind of thing you would have seen in Friday the 13th. Or I like, don't know if I'd call any of these kills understated, Wayne. Well, no, but I mean... The less, prostitute was le- elaborately yeah. killed off. Yeah. We but, had the crane shot, Wayne. But when you compare it to this one, because this one is very bloody. Like you say, this is what you'd see in like a modern slasher film. Like you say, cuts the arm off, fake arm, staggers around, gets hit in the back. It's a very, very brutal kill. Tarantino's favourite on-screen kill, as we've said. So a woman enters after this, this uh, blood spraying on the walls. She gets an axe to her shoulder. She drops dead. We tilt up. Who is the culprit, Wayne? Who is the killer of this unknown woman at the moment? Turns out the killer is Peter. Peter. It's Peter Neal, our protagonist. He's the bloody he's... killer. He thinks he's killed Anne, though. Mm-hmm. But it's the policewoman. He's found in like a very a very shaky state. Because, yeah, I couldn't tell who that policewoman was to begin with. I wasn't no. sure. I had to take a... I had to do a double take. Well, you're supposed to think it's Anne. Yes. It's the police detective. That's the idea. But that's great. You're supposed to think it's Anne. You're not supposed to think the killer is yes. Peter. Yep. We've almost conditioned to think because he's the protagonist, he's the innocent party. But it's this great thing. If you go back to the film, you kind of add the clues of, like you say, got clonked on the head earlier and just conveniently kind of missed what happened. 
here's the thing. You're led to believe that maybe he was in, acting in self-defense in this moment because he, after he kills him, he goes into shock, but he soon realizes it wasn't Anne. When the detective comes in, he comes in with Anne, the male detective. Anne enters with him. When Peter sees this, he kind of, in an animal instinct, scurries into the corner animal-like, doesn't he? Yeah. And hides. He's like like curled up in the fetal yeah. position. They come in, there's a con- there's a confrontation, and it turns out the kind of revelations that there is, the critic from earlier, he was the killer, Cristiano was the killer. But we find this out because it does a very, it, it kind of over-explains, this is what I was saying, there's some clunkers within this yeah. film. Sometimes we're told verbally rather than visually, because essentially we're told what happens, and the, the, the structure and the plot of this film has been, is getting summed up now by the detective, who essentially tells the audience that the reason Peter started killing was so the critic could be blamed for the deaths of Jane and Bulmer. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, Peter wasn't the killer throughout this film. No. The critic actually was the killer. Yeah. I know this sounds twisty, people, but the <laughs> yeah. critic was the killer. And Peter killed the critic, and from then on, he's been covering up his mess, in a sense? I think so, yeah. I think. Because the idea is, if you want to get into the psychological aspects of it, the idea is these killer, these killings have kind of awoken this kind of, it's like a dormant volcano in right. Peter's mind. It's awoken a dark part of him. That's what those flashbacks were with the woman in the red shoes. This was part of Peter's past, which I Tell guess... Tell me, why, yeah. Wayne? Here, here's the interesting thing. Mm. Why is it a point of his past? Well, I think it's because this woman that we see in these flashbacks, he was essentially humiliated by her. He was the one that was held down and had the heel shoved into his mouth. Well, well, he killed a woman in Rhode Island when he was a teenager. That's, yeah. that's the gist of it yeah that's what's been awoken in his mind and i guess it's like we said earlier just kind of flipped a switch in his head so we can kind of let, let, let's ruminate on that for a moment okay these flash flashback sequences these dream sequences so what is this psychologically is this telling the audience that peter is somehow psychologically damaged by his past he is damaged by the humiliation he felt with this woman in the red shoes and the reason he killed this phantom woman in his teenage years was because of his sense of humiliation. Yeah, I think so. Also, talking about maybe it's trying to say that you can try and repress the past, you can try and cover it up, you can bury it as best you can, but there's just some things that you can't escape. Again, like we said in um, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, part of her past follows her all the way through to the present. Right. And again, that- uh, and again with Peter, this is someone he's tried to lock away, but it's been brought back through circumstances. And the reason he, he was a suspect when he was a teenager, but there wasn't enough evidence, so it wasn't even brought to trial. Yes. So after this, what happens is Peter slices his own neck. Yeah. So he drops dead, he's in a pool of blood. The detective and Anne, they head back to her car. For whatever reason, he runs back in. Mm-hmm. But Wayne, in true horror style, yeah. Peter's no longer there. No. There's the pool of blood, but he's gone. So why is he gone, and why is there a pool of blood still there? Well, they actually find uh, a razor blade, a straight razor, and there's little holes in it, and he presses a button. It's a prop razor. It's basically there to spray blood onto him as he cuts his throat. Which is great, Wayne, because yeah. this film... And I think, actually, you know how I was, we, were, we were joking about I was joking about, about the screen references? Yeah. I think it ties in quite a bit, because to me, this film is quite meta. Yeah. It's very self-aware, which Scream was itself. And Peter slitting his throat with a prop knife is very in 
in line with the thematics that this film is self-aware that it, that it's a film. It's very self-aware that it's an Argento film. Yeah. So it's using that razor as a fake out because mm. of its self-awareness. Uh, like uh, after that moment, you're thinking, right, okay, that's the end of it. But no, it pulls a yeah, like pulls a trick on you. And there's a great shot. Do you want to set up the shot? Oh yes. Are you talking about the? Uh, about, it's called like a dark double. Tell me. Oh man, it's so good. Tell I, me. I, I gasp when I've seen this. Basically, what happens is... Try and contain yourself and tell us. (laughs) Yeah. We've got uh, Germani, who's the detective. He's looking down at the ground. Yes. Now, this shot... Man, I wonder how long it took to compose this one. Basically, he stood there looking down at the ground. Nothing else. And then at this point, he ducks down, and it's Peter right behind him. Peter has essentially been stood in his silhouette right behind him. It, on second viewing, Wayne, you can actually see Peter's ear. It yeah. doesn't perfectly match up. That would have been really difficult to Did do. Did you see yes. that? No, I didn't actually. Even, even the second... It, it, it works The a second lot. time, when I think I've maybe seen a bit sticking out. Yeah. But either way, it works. It's a great shot. Which, you know how we said this is riffing... Not riffing, but this is also like uh, De Palma's body double? Yeah. Well, De Palma would steal that shot for his film Raisin Kane. He did in Raising Cane, yes. yeah. I think it actually has been used in a few of the movies as well. I don't like well. Raising Cane much. Do you not? Do you? I can't remember the last time I've even seen it. Raising Cane? It was a bit too corny yeah. for me. But it's used to damn good effect in this movie. It is. It's such a great moment, yeah, because he uh, rises up at the end. Like I say, it's a dark double, because we're talking this movie about doubles, about doppelgangers, about Doppel- reflections right. of ourselves. And that just, it's, again, we're talking about the visual storytelling, like the body double, right there in the image. Great scene, Wayne. Absolutely beautiful Great scene. Great scene. Poor detective gets knocks in the back. Yeah, that's him dead as well. Man, body count's really piling up now. Isn't so it? Here, here, here's the thing. Last scene, Wayne. Yeah. Peter's death. Yeah. Is a bit funny. You, you like got, that? You got, it's great comical. Okay, yeah. so Anne runs back in from the car. Yeah. Through the pouring rain. Very like the opening of Suspiria. Mm-hmm, yeah. She runs into the house. She can't get in the door. No. There's a sculpture blocking the door. Yeah, this big, weird, silver, pointy thing. Very modernist, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pointy and metal. Yes. She finally dislodges it. One of the metal bars from this sculpture. Yeah. Penetrates <laughs> old Peter. I went through all She that must have opened that door with some force. She must have done, yeah. Because it doesn't... Do you think that's even that heavy? I have no idea. Maybe. But I mean, like he went through all of that and then he eventually gets killed by, what, an ornament? Yeah. <laughs> Very unfortunate. Like the heel going through the mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's being humiliated all over again, in a sense. Again, it's the penetration because there's been penetration with razor, with axe. Yeah. It's just something that's been happening with uh, with like switchblade as well. Yeah. It's something we've seen all through the film. So thematically, it's very, very on point. You, was it satisfactory, that killing? Well, it might have, have been, liked be- it different... might be better if a character had done it yeah. more directly, I suppose. Pierced him rather than... Pierced him, yeah. But in than... a way, it's it's kind of funny because he's he's been taken out by something like that that he couldn't possibly have predicted. Do you think Argento's having fun with this film? I think he is. I think so. Especially if this is going to be a poke at his critics. Exactly. He's going to want to have fun. He's going to have fun knowing, oh, well, if my previous films pissed them off, this is really going to get them going. <laughs> Maybe the that is... He, he knowingly knows that ending is a little silly. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. that's the point of it. Yeah, It's the penetrative act that is supposed to be the thematics, isn't it? Yeah, because that's what's bothered the people about his films beforehand. Because if we can believe in his dream sequences that he's, he's had this humiliation mm. from his teenage years of this... I don't know if this is a psychological or a, a literal, but the, the heel in his mouth, essentially penetration, and he's being killed by penetration though. Mm-hmm. and then that's exactly what's happened to him now yeah and she screams very loudly mm-hmm. and her scream feeds into that goblin soundtrack to end the film mm-hmm. and her scream kind of it drifts over and blends in and splices into the ending of the music which is very great mm-hmm. and that's it yeah credits roll end of film 
Can I just say, all the films we've done for Video Nasty Month, the ones I haven't seen, which is Switch Came From The Sea, Don't Go In The House. So all of them bar one, Carnival. And the, all of them bar Carnival, yeah. This was my favourite. Was your favourite? As a viewing experience, this was my favourite, yeah. You, you tell me, because you're new to this film. Of course, I've seen it several times. Mm. Yeah, no, fancy, <laughs> fancy, fancy. I've told you about my demented teenage years. Where? Yes, I have, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, tell yeah. me, as a first-time viewer... What stuck out to you? Why do you like this one better than the other three? What is it? Just tell me. It's the creative murder mystery is what I liked so much. The themes of the duality, the trauma, art imitating life as well. I loved how you know it keeps you it keeps you invested because you're trying to work out who the killer is, but it throws so many curveballs. Things like the actual killer being killed off part of the way through, and it's someone else who's taking yeah. over. It's like something you could almost not possibly predict and i like the look of the film i like it's kind of downtrodden look yeah again the harsh use of lights the kind of emptiness of it and yeah i just thought i thought the kills were very creative kills were great very beautifully done you know, slasher yeah. fans love their kills yes it's just such a well-made film and the mystery really draws you in it was just so fascinating i loved watching it, it was great some detractors of our gen who have accused him of style over substance do you think there's any of that do you think, above all, he's being a stylist in well, this it's film? it's almost a kind of downplayed style, isn't it? Because he wanted to make it as unglamorous as he could, and he wanted but to the, kind of no, downplay the, 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 the technical proficiency, the, yeah. the crane shot coming up. The th- yeah, I don't think it overshadowed like, no. the material itself. No. Like you say, maybe some clunky aspects. Right. Jane just happened to drive by, and yeah. some of the acting and things like that. But overall, I think it works as a stylistic piece and as a story. So you think it's a successful way to end our video nasty month? Absolutely. I'm very, very glad that this is the one that we that, that I chose to end video nasty month. Even though beforehand I had no idea what I was going to think of it. So are you looking forward to getting into more Argento films? Yes, I definitely would. P- plenty. There's so much material there. You probably like. Op- if anybody likes this film, they'll like opera as well. Right. Oh, well, I guess I'll have to watch opera now then. It's a great yeah. film. So what's your, because you've seen this before, you've yep. seen Tenby a few times, what's your take on it now that you've you know rewatched it a few times for this podcast? Well, when I watched it for this podcast, it had been quite a long time. I, I, the, the the memory of who the killer was was starting to drift. I still knew, <laughs> but of course it was, it was drifting. Once you know, you can kind of sow the seeds, can't you? Yeah. You kind of, it thematically makes sense that Peter is the killer once you know. Of course, it's easy when you know the answer. Mm-hmm. So, in its totality, it works very well. As we said, there is quite a few clunkers in the film. There is some choices that I think are a bit hokey. When it was seen Jane out the window, maybe his death, in the exact manner Peter's death took place at the end, was maybe a bit hokey as well. Overall, very strong film. Really like it. It's in stark contrast to the psychedelic styles of Suspiria and Inferno. And it would kickstart another cycle of Jalo films for Argento. He would make Trauma, he would make Opera, The Stendhal Syndrome. Mm-hmm. They would never quite match. For me, this, possibly Opera, but Ten- Tenebrae is his last masterpiece in the Jalo mm. genre. Opera comes close, The Stendhal Syndrome is strong as well. But for me, after this, his career pretty much faltered into mm. a 
kind of mediocrity. You say like almost self-parody, like you said with the kind of newer films he's done. Yeah. Yes. So I, yeah. I know for a lot of people think that if this was his return to Giallo films, and I know a lot of people actually do regard this as his masterpiece now. Is that true? His Giallo, his Giallo masterpiece. Yeah, at least. it could be. Maybe still go with Bird of the Crystal Plumage. Probably. Okay. Probably. It's his first. In his mind, it kickstarted the whole Giallo craze, which it did. Mm-hmm. It's maybe the strongest. Maybe the strongest. In terms of Video Nasty Month, we both agree this was a very good movie to wrap up the month with. What what a way to wrap up, Wayne. That is Video Nasty Month done. We mm. have dug the depths of depravity. <laughs> we have gone into the sensational, the, the, mm. the depraved, the... Mm-hmm. Give me an objective, Wayne. Give me an objective. Morbid. Morbid. Something more fun than morbid. That sounds like great. <laughs> is that too mundane yeah. a word? Grim. Despicable. Detestable. Des- despicable. Des- detestable. Mm. All these words. We have done it. We have seen it all. We have seen <laughs> turtles mutilated. We have saw witches who are not witches. Yes. We we've have s- saw burning houses. We've seen, and- and- we've seen hats falling off. Fucking all. Fucking Bulmer, man. <laughs> we've seen all the worst of humanity. But look, people will be thinking, hey, you've got done your video nasty month. There is still a week of October left. Well, and that is true. And we have a Halloween episode, Wade. <laughs> we do. We're it go- is not a video nasty, and we're not going to tell you. No. This is going to be a surprise. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've let you know after each episode what each video nasty would be. But mm-hmm. this is going to be... Th- hey, this is a fun one. As we said, we've been depraved for this whole month so far. Mm-hmm. We're going to lighten the, lighten the mood, lighten the atmosphere for a bit of fun, aren't we? So for now, we're going to go off, we're going to drown our sorrows, we're going to cleanse ourselves of all of this, all of these devilish movies we've been watching, and then we're going to be back for our Halloween episode. It's a fun one, we think you're going to like it. So join us next week where we'll discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. <laughs>